Hi, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, we're going to do a follow-up podcast. So a few weeks ago, Dennis Stevens and I talked about building an organizational system that can embrace change. And that was kind of a high-level conversation, but also it went crazy deep on some things. And now we're going to try to break those things out a little bit more. So we're going to focus on designing an execution model to provide feedback that can be incorporated into strategic planning. And with me, once again, is Leading Agile's co-founder and chief methodologist, Dennis Stevens. Dennis, thank you for taking time out of your morning. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. And before we get started, I want to check in and see how things went on the run, because you did something pretty amazing recently. Well, so first off, I would say that that um, saying it was a run... <laughs> Wait, hang on. Before you, tell, before you start telling this story, right before we started the podcast, Dennis shut off everything so nobody would bother him, and immediately they start calling on the phone. Isn't that funny? It's, and it it's, was something I wasn't replying to because I shut down everything. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Tell us about the run. So, um, yeah. So saying it was a run is probably a little bit of an, of, uh, an overstatement. We probably um, uh, walked at least as much as we ran of it. Um, but, yeah. So, you know, a year ago, last October uh, or end of September, I had my aorta replaced. I had an aortic valve um, uh bovine aortic valve put in because I was having aneurysms from a childhood problem with my heart. And uh, Steve Cover challenged me to come run the Las Vegas half marathon with him um, a year later. So we signed up for it. And then about two months ago, a little bit more than two months ago, I crashed my car and fractured a bone in my back. So I didn't really train much for the last, um, last two or three weeks for it. Um, and I got out there Steve broke his foot, dropped a table on his foot, so I went out there my by God, myself. My God, you guys are a mess. Yeah, we're old, man. This It's crazy <laughs> how fragile we are now. And, uh, um, I'm waiting for the hip replacement. When's that going to happen? Well, it's going to be a knee before it's a hip. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, so so got out there. Um, my girlfriend, Kim, uh, who's never done a half marathon before, goes, can I run it with Steve's number? And I go, Sure. So Kim and I both ran a uh, half marathon. It's my first in about five years. Wow. And it's the first one she's ever done. That's we awesome. Finished the time that we scheduled to finish. And then, uh, um, yeah, was very happy with it. That's excellent. Congratulations. And I would, you said, you know, it's an overstatement to call to run. I bet Fidipides walked part of that first marathon. I bet he didn't run all the way. Yeah. But he also died at the end. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> well, that's because that's why you do the half marathon, Dennis. <laughs> All right, cool. So I'm glad that you're feeling well. I'm glad that that went well. I'm glad that you can mock Steve for challenging you to something he didn't even finish. And let's talk about designing an execution model to provide feedback that can be incorporated into strategic planning, which is kind of a big phrase. Can you maybe simplify that a little bit? Folks. Yeah, I mean, what's the, the interesting dynamic that we see in organizations is sort of historically we've organizations have gone out and they come up with these big strategies um, and they go into the portfolio organization to go find a way to go get all of this executed. Right. And the portfolio organization becomes um, the system for pushing stuff down into the organization and holding people accountable and blaming people when it doesn't get done. Right. So. It sounds when you say it, it sounds like we're making pate, like we're just jamming the food down the neck of the poor poor workers. Sorry, you know, it, it's it's fascinating because because what you've got is you've got a bunch of people working as hard as they possibly can, just just heroic efforts, really competent people, and and companies are profitable, right? I mean, they're figuring out and they're getting it done. 
Um, a lot of the things I'm going to talk about, they're probably sort of doing one way or another as the work is happening. They're just not as intentional about it. And some of the decisions are probably getting made at the wrong places. So what we want to do is we want to look at what does it look like first off to figure out what types of feedback do we need to really connect strategy to execution? Um, how do we start to leverage an agile organization that's able to deliver in a way that can answer questions and, and, um, uh, uh, confirm hypotheses and highlight constraints and highlight the interdependent nature of work through the organization so that we can make ongoing strategic plans. What does that system look like that allows us to have that feedback and continually make the next best possible decision in an informed fashion? And do you think that the the companies out there are able to see their way through this? I mean, because it just seems like they're so busy trying to get stuff through the system that this is a little beyond their canvas, maybe. So so what's really interesting, Dave, is every place that we've sat down and explained how to do this and the approach and sort of the, the, the problems they've had with their old approach, everybody goes, that makes a ton of sense. And we're able to shift their thinking um, to, to make better trade-off decisions. Now, it's not always perfect, right? Okay. But so you might not get it all the way up to the executive level, but we can get the portfolio organization providing a lot better feedback and a lot better information. Um, and we can get the organization executing the work in a way that creates more options. So if we can do that at the portfolio level, we've had a, we've had a tremendous amount of success and impact in the organization. Over time, some of these things tend to move up. Right. Um, but right now, the only way that organizations get things done is to shove as much in as possible and say money is no objective for these strategic things. Go figure out a way to get it done. And I want to correct myself because I said pate earlier, and the visual I was trying to create was foie gras, not pate. So just jamming the food down the gizzard of the workers, which is not a healthy thing to do and doesn't create anything useful for anyone. Um, can you talk about the optionality a little bit? Because I know I know we've touched on that before, but I want to reiterate that in this podcast because I think that's a really important point to consider when people make that subtle shift to thinking this way. Yeah. So an interesting phenomena that you see in organizations is everybody wants to start their projects on day one because they want to get their money starting to be spent right um, before their stuff gets deprioritized, right? <laughs> before they realize it's not going to work, yes. Right. And so once <laughs> you start spending it, it's really, really hard for organizations to stop projects. The net result of this is is everything's being worked on all at the same time, and, and there's no stopping point in the middle um, for somebody to come in and go, hey, wait, I want to shift, or we've learned something we want to change because – because we're not sequencing the work, we're not flowing the work through the system, right? In a way that we can that we can adapt, right? So there's no optionality. So one of the key points of all of this is how do we how do we break work down as we feed it into organizations, so we can finish stuff. And even if it's not the most important thing, if there's three most important things, you're still actually better off from an optionality and adaptability standpoint. And quite frankly, from a risk and a quality standpoint finishing one thing before you start the second yeah um, in the system because that's that's where when we're pushing uncertain things in we don't really know how they're going to affect everything um the way that you absorb um uncertainty is through feedback and optionality um so the picture i draw sometimes is i write on a on a whiteboard i go a a a i go abc 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 this is how we're working on things working on three initiatives all at the same time and 
if any one of them change or impact anything, it moves everything else around it. Yeah. Um, and we have no option to stick D in if D comes up. And we have no ability to make a decision about B if some of our assumptions about B turn out not to be true. So the other way to flow that work through the system, and this is overly simplified, but I want to shift the thinking, is now I'm flowing it through AAA, BBB, CCC. It takes the same amount of time to get all nine of those pieces of work done through the queue. Right. Does that make sense that visualization makes sense? Yeah. Um, but I had optionality. If A was a bad idea, I can learn it earlier and stop it earlier. I could start B sooner. If something changes and D comes in and it's more important, I can put D in before B or before C. If if as I get into B, I learn that some of my hypotheses were incorrect and B actually only needs to be two-thirds of size, I only need two Bs to complete it, I create the optionality to make those types of decisions. And then I have to be able to create the feedback mechanisms, which is what we're talking about today, yeah. to, um, to make those decisions. But if we don't start out sequencing the work first in a way that creates the opportunity to learn and adapt, then, um, then we can't really exploit these agile systems that we're building in organizations. Yeah, so it's giving them more freedom of choice. Absolutely. Okay, and I want, I want to point out two, two things really quick. So the stuff that we're talking about is about creating that freedom of choice, and it's all about, um, like you just, you just mentioned, you know, se sequencing the work so that you can get feedback. I think that that's, this is another subtle shift that's important to note before we go into the, the five different things is that... Um, this is not about just getting stuff done. This is about that thing you talked about earlier where we're prioritizing to learn. So how can we get that feedback? How can we get the information so you can improve the decision-making process? And it's the, the iterative loop, not just for customer feedback, but for the company as well, correct? That's right. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's really, it's really, really interesting because the way that we've historically tried to solve this stuff is by getting a perfect understanding up front of everything. Um, and we can't get a perfect understanding. Yeah, of sometimes that doesn't work, <laughs> right? We how you know, yeah. So it just it becomes sort of crazy. There's so many assumptions built into our planning models, and there's so many dependencies in the software that we're building. I mean, one of the things that really drives to this shift that we're talking about is you know the digital nature of software today and the the um, number of dependencies that are injected into the world and how difficult it is for any one piece of work to get done independent of any other piece of work. Um, the, the nature of the software that we're building today and the nature of the problems that we're solving today are all very complicated. Yeah. And, and so we have to, we have to be able to, to build a system that can get feedback for us. Um, so that, so that we can respond to it. Cool. Okay. So when we go, we're going to go through these five different, um, categories of things to look at. Is it going to be easier to go through them one at a time or do you want to kind of just do them all at once? Um, let's go through them and sort of talk about them one at a time okay. and then talk about what it looks like to actually build the orchestration mechanism. Okay. Uh, to, to address these. All right. So before, just, just to set everybody up with the five things before we start going through them, we're going to talk about scope. We're going to talk about capacity, um, some conversations about resource-related concerns, some technical concerns, and then validation, which includes sequencing the work to get the feedback. So let's, and then we'll talk about how to orchestrate them all together, but let's start out with scope. So what do they have to think about with respect to scope and, and trying to create this model? So one of the things that, that we often find at the very, very top, very, very early on in projects 
Um, and some of it has to do with how we finance projects, how we understand accounting rules is we want to get the scope perfectly defined. Um, and then we want to estimate the size of all of that work. And then we want to go piecemeal that work across what we believe the delivery organization is going to be. And the problem with that is, is we don't have perfect understanding of the scope of the work. We don't know what, we don't know exactly how we're going to solve the problems that we're going after when we get started. The amount of effort it takes to figure that out can be extremely expensive. There, there's another interesting thing about, about this, Dave, is that um, organizations pay money for outcomes. So the scope becomes kind of the thing that has to get delivered. The problem has to get solved. And there's a subtle shift here. There's a subtle shift here. I don't know what a shift is. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to edit that out. Maybe. <laughs> there's, a, there's a subtle shift here. Um, between what are the outcomes the business is going for and what are the requirements that the product has to meet. And so it's become really interesting is in order to get control over systems over time, people have focused on getting clearer and clearer and clearer on the requirements. And uh, we've lost track of the scope or the outcomes. Well, and I want to add something to this too, but you're saying they're concerned about the outcomes. And I think at a, at a high level in the company, they are but I think mid-level to the people managing the projects, they're about the output often still. Yeah. Yeah. So we lose that connection to what's the best possible way to solve this problem. And I think the portfolio organization needs to be um, not forcing um, outcomes into requirements and then shoving requirements into the system. They need to be shoving outcomes into the system. So doesn't this require a massive amount of trust that has been destroyed by Frederick Taylor and everything that came after him? Well, yeah, so I'm not going to get down to Taylorism problem. <laughs> it's just fun. He's so easy to hit. I'll tell you what's interesting. I, I think that what makes it impossible for us to get this clarity is when we work on 10 times more things than we have capacity to do and we manage scope. And we don't manage the other four areas of concern because the scope is kind of what the scope is most of the time. Like I said, people are paying for the outcomes. When right. the money comes down from the executives, they're paying for the outcome. So we actually have we have some leverage in the outcomes if we if we design the system so we can get feedback and see if we're making progress, if we're closing the gaps. We have some leverage there. But the other four areas that we're going to talk about is really where all the leverage is in in um in solving for the problems and creating adaptability and moving faster. Before so we, oh, can I ask you a question before we go into those? Yeah, yeah. I just want to check in and make sure so I, that that I have a, a kind of a simple example of this in my head. When we're talking about the scope and the idea of an outcome, to say that um, I want to reduce, I don't know, the number of calls to the call center by X percent over a year, that's an outcome. Yes. The system that we think might fix that problem that can be the output. But what happens is people get so jammed up on focusing on just pushing the system through that they lose sight of the business outcome or desire. They just want to be able to say, I dragged this thing across the line. Who cares if it has the impact or not? Yeah, that's right. Okay. The, other, the other thing that happens is in order to get my project approved in the first time, I often have to throw in 600 extra features so I can drive the ROI up high enough. It's like government, yeah. <laughs> And we're gonna we're gonna talk about that when we talk about prioritization. Okay. Um, but yeah, so you've got three major problems here around the scope. We're yeah. working on too many things at once. 
We've tried to solve the problem by getting clarity on the requirement so we can precisely navigate it through this complex system, which is impossible. And we probably don't even truly understand the problem half the time anyway. Don't understand the problem or how we're going to solve it. We've right. spent a ton of time and effort creating this, this information, which is impossible to manage, and we don't have any ability to get feedback on. And then the third problem that we have is um, we're working on 10 times more things simultaneously than we have capacity to finish. Okay, so, so that's a good segue into number two, capacity. That's right. Very smooth. Yeah. So what happens um, is strategy gets cast into the organization's the portfolio, and it tends to be capacity unaware. Meaning and we have an endless supply of humans that are waiting to do the work. We'll just go – we'll just put more money in if we have to, or we'll move people around. Just go find a way to get it done. I don't want to be tied down with this feedback on capacity, Right. Okay. And then and then what happens is so we think we've got a certain amount of capacity, but organizations are not really committed to making that capacity available to the scope that we prioritize, that we made our assumptions around. So we estimate this is going to take a third of the organization, this one's going to take a third of the organization, this one's going to take a third of the organization. When we get into it, things get messy and there's no way to manage or balance that capacity against the demand in the system. So all of a sudden something is taking more capacity than we expected or we're having production outages or the estimates that we made up front, the budget that we created around the scope um, is inaccurate and it's going to be bigger than we thought it was going to be. So all these things are going on and we're not, we, we weren't really capacity aware when we pushed the scope into the system and we have no feedback mechanism to um, provide insights to us when the capacity wasn't exactly what we estimated and allow us to make decisions as we're going. So at some point, we have to be able to manage the outcomes within the capacity. That's a pretty important uh, artifact of being able to run the world. But when that's going to change, we have to be able to provide that feedback back up and make decisions around it. And what's really fascinating is, again, the portfolio decision to put more work into the system that we have capacity to manage makes it obfuscates those capacity uh, concerns. So everybody's working on everything and I don't know that I'm late until the very end. So everybody's crashing okay. all over the place. And so we're not able to make good capacity decisions against the outcomes that we're planning on, on producing. So one thing that I found going on in my brain when you were explaining all this, I mean, I, I understand we, we have a limited number of people that can only do so many work, and I think we've all worked. I, one place I worked, there was one guy who was regularly allocated at 360, like 67%, um, which is obviously impossible, but there's this hangover from the 80s and 90s where we just assume people will just, it's like Animal Farm, you'll work harder, you'll get it done. When you were explaining this, I kept thinking about, well, and there's also the fact that we don't have all the people. Like if you run out of capacity, you theoretically could hire more. But that's not even an option all the time anymore because we're looking at such specific skills and such deep skill sets that they're hard to find. They're a scarce resource as well. And domain knowledge, right? People yeah. that understand the business problem. So bringing a developer, developers just aren't fungible. Testers just aren't fungible. Infrastructure people just aren't completely fungible. Did that, so, did that change at a specific point? Because I remember that there was a point where we, we did all think that they were just plug and play. Um, yes. So – when we were all doing accounting packages right, and everybody understood all the business rules around accounting, I could bring a developer in and I could move him from one GL to another GL to another GL. 
and he started with a ton of similar domain knowledge. Okay. They were also working on a single platform that didn't have all these interdependencies and all the complexities in the product. Um, and they also had a full stack skill set, so we could probably do a better job of figuring out what their capacity was. So we understood the problem better. We understood the size of the work better, and the domain knowledge was more consistent, and the technical dependencies were fewer. Okay. So it was easier to match those up. There's just aren't the problems that we're solving in most cases today. Yeah. Okay. So sorry for taking you out down the rabbit hole. So no, with capacity, how do they get a better sense of what their capacity for work actually is, especially if they have this like history of always over allocating everyone and trying to get them to multitask? Yeah. So when you look at everything that we talk about at Basecamp One, it's about stabilizing capacity and balancing capacity and demand. Right. So that's that, that's that first conversation. But when we're, when we're planning at the strategy level, we have to have some idea about what um, our capacity is and what's available to us. So in these big ideas, we can make trade-offs at the high level or we have enough roadmap to get the capacity established to deliver on the strategy. Okay. The, the, fail, the failure mode at the portfolio level is – like you said, going out and immediately just trying to hire more capacity and shoving more stuff in without yeah. understanding whether that capacity is actually available or whether the new stuff is going to be as productive as the old capacity, right? So there's this whole conversation around what is my capacity? How do I best spend it? How do I ramp it up? How do I do burst in certain areas? There's a whole set of conversations that need to take place. Um, and those are all trade-offs. One of the things that we found when we do capacity and demand conversation at the strategy level with organizations is they're often very willing to trim the scope down to capacity, and they're more willing to do that than they are to try to burst up um, organizational capacity. Um, they just don't know they have to make those trade-offs when they're casting their strategy, pl strategic plans forward. So the thing I don't understand is this stuff all sounds like common sense. I mean, like if you take half a second, it's obvious, but why is it that the higher up the food chain you go, the less people think about this? Is it just because they're used to being told yes to everything or is there some other – I mean you might, not, you might not have an answer for it, but it just seems like it gets worse the higher up the food chain you go. I think there's a couple of answers. Um, I think one of them is is we don't have good information to provide. People think their job is just to go do what they're told. Okay. And they're, they're not taking into account that what they're really responsible for is giving the right information to the strategic planning so they can make the best possible decisions, right? Yeah. A lot of times strategic planning, they just go, okay, got it, got it. We'll go find it. We'll go make it happen. We'll go yeah. make it. And then they go into a system where their planning mechanism is resource-driven, not throughput and option-driven. Okay. And they create a system that there's no ability to adapt or provide feedback to the strategic group. And then they just grind and grind and grind to deliver. And here's the thing. It's been extremely successful for a number of years, right? <laughs> yeah, but we kind of hit the wall. Yeah, but that's exactly right. But we're hitting the wall, and that's yeah. the challenge. Okay. So let's talk about resources too. Can we go into that part now? Yeah, so so the, the, the resource, the staffing, the sort of um, how, we, how we provide enough of the things that we need. So I'm, I'm going to use resources in an unpopular way a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> the humans are resources. It's not just that humans are resources. It's it's environments and oh. it's infrastructure and it's office space and it's communication and it's the ability to orchestrate and communicate. So one of the challenges we run into 
in this organizational area is, yeah, I can add 50 more people. I can add 15 more people to this team, but do I have the ability to get them up to speed? Do I have the ability to validate their work? Do I have the ability to provide them with the environments and testing and space and everything that we need? Do I have the ability to orchestrate their time and efforts? So we miss a lot of times in the scaling of capacity and the adding of resource by thinking that I can add three more developers and have sufficient capacity. So that that made me, the way you just explained that got me thinking about something else. And it's not just, I need three more bodies. It's I need three more bodies, three more desks, power for three more people, computers for three more people, an environment for three more people. It's like this multiplying cost. The ability to get clear backlog in, three, in front of three more people. The and ability to validate them up. the world that three more people are doing, the ability to orchestrate the work between these teams. So a lot of times when we talk about adding capacity or resource to the system, we want to talk about adding another team to the system and everything that's necessary to spin up a team. So not head count, but an actual a a team count, count maybe a, you could a say. Team count and everything that it takes to make that team be successful. Because the, the failure mode that we see when we're taking this bigger than can be delivered strategy, we balance it against our capacity, and they go, cool, let's add 15 more people. Well, yeah. you don't have the safety in your code to add 15 more people and get 15 more people's worth of capacity. As a matter of fact, we know for the Mythical Man Month that adding those 15 people are going to take your three smartest people out of producing work into trying to orchestrate these 15 people. You're actually going to produce less work with 15 more people than you did with 15 fewer people. So what does it look like to spin up the resource necessary to staff another team and get them productive? And what is the timeline on that? Um, so once you get to stable capacity and you understand um, the capacity and demand conversation, you can get really, really clear about, and what does it take to spin up another team? What does it take to add resource to the system that increases our capacity? So one of the problems for the people that are listening, one of the problems about interviewing Dennis is that he says stuff and I get so wrapped around it that I miss like the next five sentences that he says. So I'm going to go back to something he said a few minutes ago. You were talking about adding another team and you said you don't know if you have the whatever with the code. And I've never heard anybody talk about that before. Like if you're, if you're going to bring on another team, what's the level of risk that's increased to the stability of the code or the stability of the environment? Does anybody measure that? And should well, yeah, we measure we know, it? We know how to measure it. We know how to determine test safety. We know what it looks like. We know when it's expensive to add more people um, because uh, we can't test it any faster. We know okay. that building that can't be tested is the most expensive thing that we can do, right? Yeah. So, so I don't want to add, I don't want to add developers to a project that I don't have the test safety built into the system to get feedback rapidly and keep them from getting off track, and that I don't have the capacity on the back end for validating and deploying the work that they're doing. So this kind of slides into the technical concerns conversation then, because if you're going to bring more resources on, you've got to make sure your environment is stable enough to support them before you bring them on, right? Yeah, that's right. So the next, the next. You notice that segue? How smooth that was, Dennis? Do you, it, it's very nice, Dave. Did you, did, you realize, <laughs> did you realize they're actually written that you discover <laughs> the next problem as you go through in this order? I just want to take all the credit for that segue. I thought that was pretty smooth. But it's go good. ahead. It's, it's all because of your architecture. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's it, it, if it's self evident, it's a good architecture. But you're also a very smart guy, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So one of the fascinating things that happens when we get into organizations that are pushing code out faster than they have capacity to get to, they're putting people on that aren't taking the time to create the test safety because they're trying to move faster, is we end up with high coupled, low cohesion, low test safety applications, right? And so we talk about technical debt or technical concerns. And what's fascinating is these technical concerns can be within the code. These technical concerns can be within our test data itself, our testability. And these technical concerns can be within our ability to stand up the infrastructure to support testing. So I'll give you an example. We had a, we had a client several years ago, Greg King was, was working with them and they added developers to their organization, increased their rate of testing and they added testers and they added requirements, but they didn't have environments to test the code that was getting produced. And so they got bottlenecked on a technical concern. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. So they they're all fighting for the same testing environment. They're all fighting for the same testing environment. And so, wow. so you couldn't run them in a way that they could operate autonomously to the end. And so they were bottlenecked on this testing environment and then they couldn't integrate and merge their code. And because they've been producing buggy code historically, they had a lot of bug fixes happening through one of these teams as well. And they, from a configuration management standpoint, they couldn't roll all those changes back in because of the bottleneck that was being created by the lack of testing environments. And so, so the, even if they add a second testing environment, that doesn't necessarily fix anything because then you've got to make sure that they're staying in sync, that you're bringing all the code together, that it's all stable when you put it back together. It's still a mess. Yeah. It's one of those interesting examples of, you know, like from a theory of constraints standpoint, we'll talk about solving a problem behind the constraint, increasing throughput before the constraint actually destabilizes the system even further. And so a lot of times when you look at these technical concerns, you kind of got to fix those things before you can run a whole lot faster. So yeah. one of the things that we've gotten some feedback on in the world is that we really start to fix these technical concerns. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very explicit. We believe that you start to realize the benefit of solving these technical concerns at about Basecamp 3, where you've started to decouple environments, decouple testing. You've got your source code under control. You've got your infrastructure under control. Um, so we want to get to base camp one, which is stable teams. We want to get to base camp two, which is smaller batches and creating options. And then we believe you can start to get the benefit out of having these technical concerns under control. What's, what's interesting is you can start solving for these technical concerns on day one. But like you said, if you solve them, if you solve them at the wrong time in the wrong order, or if you solve them, but you're not bringing quality work to the point where they're the constraint you actually can't move any faster. So you can spend a lot of money and a lot of time and do a lot of stuff uh, and not move the system any faster. And if you're trying to jam more into the system before fixing the technical concern, it's like running on a weak ankle. That's exactly right. Okay. And all of this is going to affect your ability to validate whether or not you're building the right thing. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and validation comes in a whole bunch of flavors because there's all of these assumptions that you've made around what is my capacity? What are my technical skills? How fast can I move this stuff through? Am I building the right thing for the customer? Um, so, so being able to build in the, the feedback cycles, actual validation against all of your assumptions is, is a really important part of what the portfolio needs to be sure is, made, is happening, right? So we need to understand our capacity. We need to understand our technical constraints. A strategy that is uninformed by capacity, 
or technical constraints is not one that's likely to be delivered on. So given that we've made a bunch of assumptions about capacity, a bunch of assumptions about the scope, a bunch of assumptions about our technical stuff, how do we sequence the work so and, and create points of validation against all those so we're providing that information so we know when we're going to fail? Okay. Like if, if B is going to run twice as long as we thought, is it really worth finishing B? Or should we be stopping B and starting C? Is a decision that actually needs to be made at a strategic level, not by some developer operating in a chaotic environment? So I want to ask you a question about this stuff. So I'm assuming when we talk about feedback, I'm assuming that most of the people who are listening, their brains go straight to, you know, are we building the right thing? And they think about product ownership and testing assumptions and stuff like that. But I'm wondering with these five things, is there somebody whose role it is, and maybe it's a scrum master or somebody else who is taking feedback from the work and checking assumptions about these five things. We thought if we, you know, added this many people or addressed this technical concern that this would be the impact. Is anybody doing that, like the doctor of the actual process itself or the workflow itself? Um, it, in our model, in our reference architecture, it should be the portfolio manager who's okay. providing that information. We have visualizations that we do against these types of against these categories. Um, and we talk about burning down these risks, burning down these concerns. Yeah. Is at least as important to pay attention to as burning down the scope. Yeah. Because uh, the system has to get better and healthier for it to be able to keep delivering. That's right. The other thing that's interesting around this is we'll talk about create, there's very little leverage in the scope, right? The outcomes are kind of what the outcomes are. There just isn't a huge amount of leverage. So there's variation inherent in that. But I can do things about my organizational variation against my capacity variation. I can do things against my um, resource variation. I can do things against my technical. Uh, okay. So these are the levers you can pull to flex your ability to adjust the scope. Yes, I've leveraged down there. And so I have to be able to sequence the work and get the feedback built in. Okay. To Need to pull the trigger. So when we talk about building optionality into the flow of work, yeah, these are the levers that I have optionality on. Okay, so that's capacity, resources, technical concern, and sequencing. Yep. And how do you tie all this stuff together? That was one of the things we said we were going to get to was orchestrating all of it. So if if you look at our governance model, I'm going to go with sort of a simple three tier governance model. Okay. A workshop that I've run that's really valuable is to sit down with that portfolio team and go, hey, listen, where do we have to state our assumptions about the scope in this model? And well, it's during solution planning. It's during solution design. It's in this particular step. So we'll state our assumptions. What is the earliest point in the system that we can validate the assumptions that are likely to cause this project to fail? Well, that would be when this feature gets to this state. It gets to integration testing. Okay. When can we validate our capacity concerns? When can we make sure that the capacity that we added, the resource planning that we did, the, the teams that we added, when do we need them operating and at what level do we need them operating um, so we know when they're working? So we can feed all that into, connect it to the work. Yeah, this is the point I wanted to make a little bit earlier is our model is focused on the throughput of work through the system, not not the utilization of people in the system. Yeah. So when you start to focus on flowing epics or flowing features through the system, you can start to tie these decision points to specific pieces of work at specific states in the system. And you can say, 
at this point, we need to have this conversation. Okay. And if we haven't resolved that problem, we need to escalate it up because it means that we're going to have a different ability to deliver on the strategy yes. than we intended. Okay. So you can get very intentional, and it's, it seems like a lot of overhead, but it's just not, right? Just feature by feature. There's a conversation I need to tag to some of these features around assumptions that I made up front. Yeah. Portfolio team needs to be making sure that that planning is taking place effectively. So if there's a piece of feedback that I could get earlier, we're building the wrong thing. It's technically way harder than we thought. Um, we believe that if we spend a sprint fixing this problem, we can move twice as fast, right? All those assumptions are made. Um, we have to feed those into the work and then put those decision points against the flow of work at a state in our governance model. So if I'm the portfolio person, I'm watching certain pieces of work and when they move to certain states or if they get to that state later than I anticipated, I know to go start having some questions about how to get the project completed. So right. create a ton oh. of transparency into it. So I want to ask you a question. I want you to put on your project manager hat for a second. Yep. If you're willing to do that. This sounds almost like a parallel to an idea of milestones or stage gates. Like we're going to put pins in the map and say, okay, when we hit this, or if we don't hit this by this date, this is what we have to talk about. That's absolutely true because we've made, there's some expectation or intent that's been established within the organization okay. that something's going to get done by a certain date. Yeah. Um, what happens when we run the system with everybody working on the same thing simultaneously and everything getting delivered at the end is we take away all of our ability to adapt to what we're learning about the product and we take away our ability to adapt to the realities of our ability to deliver it. Okay. So, so when you use our governance model, you break the work down, you flow the stuff, what happens is it's not the entire project is moving from state to state. It's we're adapting to the reality on the ground as yeah. the work moving through the system. I'll give you an interesting story. I was working for a company that was um, was trying to put cameras on an airplane that would fly over a field okay, and take pictures of the field and use the camera. It was a special three, four-dimensional, four-lens camera that did three dimensions and infrared stuff, and it could tell you where there were problems with the cotton that was growing on the field. And what they wanted to do was fly this plane over the field, take pictures of it, um, take that data back, produce a prescription – to put into a tractor that was going to go over that field the next day okay, and, and dictate how much retardant, uh, pesticide, potash, different things that, uh, that they put into those booms where they needed to spray it. So they wanted to minimize the inputs, minimize sure. the stuff spray onto the field and maximize the amount of cotton that gets grown. Right. Okay. So with this camera, they could do it. So we walked in to, and they spent a bunch of money buying this technology, a bunch of money. So it was a board level project. And I'm running it, and I went into the board, and I go, listen, we're about 20% 20 20 of the way through the project, and um, here are the things that we that have manifested that mean that we can't get this done by March the way that you've envisioned it. Um, I have three options I'd like to explore with you. The guy who's the head of the board goes, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I knew this agile stuff wouldn't work here. And I go, I go what are you talking about? And he goes – we never have these types of problems with our regular projects until we're 80 or 90% of the way done. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a drum kit with you? Cause that would have been perfect. So, so what happened was about 10 minutes later, after some discussion, he was like, 
wow, no, this is actually where the leverage is in this. This is actually really good news. So let's look at your options now. Because because nobody had ever walked into him. Yeah, and said that. With, with information early that <laughs> was backed up by having validated assumptions that the board had made or approved, right? Yeah. And walked in with options on how to achieve the outcome given that the requirements they had put in couldn't be delivered in the time frame. So that's so messed up. So they plan all this stuff knowing that the bad thing's going to happen. They just don't want it to happen until the end. They want that false sense of security for a while. That's right. And so we run projects with organizations that start green, and these project managers and portfolio teams fight like heck to keep them green, Yeah. hiding the truth, pushing the risk back, taking away all the leverage for us to actually do anything until until it's late or pragmatically, Dave, until somebody else fails on their part. Yeah. So be my fault that this project didn't get delivered. Oh, well, totally is. Of course it is. <laughs> right? So what I want to do at a portfolio level is I want to, I want these categories to be read. I want my my scope, my capacity, my ability to add capacity, my technical concerns, my ability to to get feedback on the schedule that you said I would get it. My uh, my ability to manage dependencies. Now we're burning down dependencies. I want to make all those things be read until you can prove to me that you've delivered it. We'll, we'll let you go in a second so you can get back to the stuff you're doing. We're almost no, done. That's not funny. <laughs> They're hungry for you. Yeah. So, so I, can I can I mention something that I think is important for this too? Yes. So if you are the project manager, like Dennis was just saying, you know, he was going to get blamed for it. And that, like I, I used to have that job. I was great at getting blamed for stuff. But if you can go to them with options earlier, then they have to make choices. They can't blame you anymore. So it is, if you're coming from like the project leader, project manager mindset, it's nice to be able to put that one down. Right? Yeah, that's right. The best the best data wins, right? Yeah. Having having the most insight and options for how to solve for the outcomes, that, that, that wins. And you can't do it in a whining way or a blaming way. This is just factually. Yeah. We agreed when we looked at this work that we would test this assumption, test this assumption, verify against this constraint, verify against this constraint. Look, we're we're hitting these dates or we're not. We're hitting these we're hitting these um, assumptions or we're not. So it is kind of milestoney, but it's milestoney based on the flow of work and how fast we're learning. Yeah, it's not milestoney based on moving the whole freaking project from one phase <laughs> to another phase. Exactly. Cool. This was awesome. Thank you. So for the folks that are listening, this was one of three conversations we're going to have. And all this stuff ties back to the podcast we did, Building an Organizational System That Can Embrace Change. Um, we're all still going to come back and talk about incorporating market sensing capability industry strategic planning. Let me say that again. Incorporating market sensing capability into strategic planning and also prioritizing work being done to maximize returns. Dennis, thank you for doing this. If folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, Dennis at leadingagile.com. Cool. All right. And I'll include a link to that up there. I appreciate you taking the time, especially since there's so many people who are hungry for your time. Uh, so thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Dave. Cool.